Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to CareAlign for sponsoring this episode. Have you been looking for a better way to manage your tasks and collaborate with colleagues? Check out CareAlign, a HIPAA-compliant digital workspace built to make the EHR work better for clinicians. Manage your tasks, build dynamic care plans, and generate your progress note in a single platform. Visit www.caroline.ai backslash explore to learn more. This is a fun episode. This is a little bit different than what we normally do on Explore the Space. In this special episode, I sit down for a conversation with my dear friend and former babysitter, Susie Rolander. And in this situation, Susie is interviewing me. Susie is a literacy specialist with a special skill set around online learning that actually preceded the COVID-19 pandemic, and she's currently pursuing her doctorate in leadership for change. She's also a co-founder of Startover, and Startover is a meeting place for experts and people seeking to make positive changes, and I was fortunate to be Susie's guest on one of Startover's live shows. This was really fun. It was fun to be on the other side of the mic. It was great to be interviewed by somebody that I've known for over 40 years. I think you will really enjoy checking this out. Before we get to the conversation, just want to remind everyone, please do check out Explore the Space podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you'd like to download your shows. Definitely click subscribe, and please do leave us that rating and a review. That really helps the show out. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space as well, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The full archive of now 230 episodes, they're all there. Please check it out. Please share with your friends as well. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com, and you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at ETS Show. This was a great conversation with Susie. She's a dear friend. We talk about a variety of relevant and resonant topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic, disaster management, and how we begin to move things forward. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Susie Rolander on Startover. Mark, before I hand it over to you to kind of give us an idea of kind of how you've gotten here as a physician, I just want to start. Mark and I were neighbors growing up, and I believe my first memory, really, Mark, was having you take guitar lessons with my mother, Rayleigh. I also remember that I used to babysit you, and... um. I'm pretty proud that I taught you how to swing dance. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that's been useful for you. That's right. um, unfortunately, you went to UCLA and I went to Cal and we that has forever been a little bit of a, some tension. 
But um, as we've kind of grown into our adult lives, Mark, you have, um, I will echo what John says, you have such a positive attitude and you are so like, I get chills just thinking about this. You are so who we need in this field. And um, I am thrilled and delighted that you are here with us tonight to talk COVID, um, not only what has been, but what we can take forward, how we can start over from this experience of COVID. So will you, with that, will you kind of give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got into medicine, and then we'll let you understand a little bit more about your audience. That sounds great. First of all, that's an extraordinary compliment, Susie, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, just to reflect back, some of my earliest memories of you was playing basketball in your driveway. Susie was a basketball star uh, in the junior high and high school. So when you're a little kid and you like basketball and your next door neighbor is the star of the high school team, that's really exciting. There was a picture of her in the paper that was on the fridge. So whenever I would go to guitar practice, there's a picture of Susie like shooting a free throw. And it was the coolest thing ever. This is what happens when your neighbor has a good memory. I remember that. Yeah, so I was going to say, funny how we remember. <laughs> I'm going to remember that forever. Okay. <laughs> you know, my I've been a physician since I finished medical school in 2003. I've been a physician ever since. So I did my residency in internal medicine. My path to medicine, you'd think it was preordained because I'm actually a third generation doctor. My dad's a doctor and his dad was a doctor, but there was a pretty lengthy stretch there where it was not something that was clear to me that I wanted to do. When I started at UCLA, you know, the world opens up when you leave Santa Rosa and you go to Los Angeles and you're on a campus like UCLA and you realize that the whole world is your oyster. There's a term in medicine that I, I, I love the first time I heard it. I love it now. It's called being pluripotent. What happens when a cell differentiates, when it's at its earliest stage, it can differentiate in a lot of different ways. And before it starts to differentiate, it is called what it is, it is known as what is called pluripotent. It has many different potencies. It can go in lots of different directions. And I absolutely love it. I love it now. And I loved it when I first learned it in medical school. When you land on a campus like UCLA, you are by definition pluripotent. You are going to be able to go in a lot of different directions. And that's what I did. I got my degree in history. I worked as a sports writer. I played tennis. I loved Loved all those things. I spent some time thinking about maybe going to medical school and the, the pre-medical environment at UCLA was not a very compelling one. It was super competitive and kind of unpleasant. I spent some time working at our local hospital in Santa Rosa, and that's when I really loved it because I saw that human side and was able to connect at that human level doing patient transport in the radiology department at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. And I that from that point on, I felt like that was a really good focus for me, and I, I wanted to pursue it. And I went into it knowing that I had pursued other things that I love and I still love today, but I had made sure to give myself a view into what those roads might look like and feel comfortable with the road that I ended up pursuing. Um, I went to medical school in Houston. Texas at Baylor College of Medicine, and I had an incredible training there. The Texas Medical Center, there's nothing in the world like it, literally and figuratively, and I couldn't leave Texas fast enough. Um, and I Texas is great. Houston is, if you like it, it's awesome. Houston was just not for me. And then I came back and I was in San Diego for my residency. And then I lived in San Diego uh, for 10 years, uh, met my wife, and I worked as what's called a hospitalist. So some of you may be familiar with that term. Some of you may not. A hospitalist is someone who specializes in the, it specializes in the care of hospitalized patients. There are pediatric hospitalists who specialize in the care of hospitalized kids. There are hospitalists like me. I specialize in the care of hospitalized adults. It's a fairly new specialty sort of in the spectrum of American medicine. It started in the early 2000s. It's the fastest growing specialty in the history of medicine period, full stop. 
Um, there's now probably in the United States somewhere between 60 and 80,000 physicians who would describe themselves as being a hospitalist. Uh, it's, it's harder to determine worldwide, but it's grown very, very fast. Uh, and it's something that I've been doing now for about 15 years, give or take. So, yeah, almost. And I love it. I, I am 100% hospital based. I'm not in the office. The One of the nicest compliments I can ever get is, Dr. Shapiro, where's your office so I can come and see you? And I have to say, I don't actually have an office, but thank you very much. And I'll send you to someone else who will take great care of you. It's a very, very fulfilling practice. It's a very intense practice working in a hospital. So it, working in a hospital is it's a very kinetic environment. The risk is very high. The acuity is very high. Uh, and you just sort of learn those rhythms and you learn that you always have to have your head on a swivel because you never know what's coming. Never more so than November of 2019 and uh, rolling into January, February, March of 2020, when the pandemic hit the United States. Wow. So hopefully that's a useful introduction. Other things that I like to do, I do a lot of medical leadership. I'm, I'm on the board of my medical group. I was the medical director for my hospitalist division for a couple of years. I host a podcast called Explore the Space Podcast. I've been doing that for almost six years now. It's a very wide ranging show looking at issues in healthcare from the perspective of those who provide healthcare and those who seek it. And we cover everything from climate change to gender equity, to gun violence, to you name it. We've probably covered it. There's like 200 130 episodes in the archive now. So I, I really enjoy all of these different things. And, you know, again, being almost 45 years old and still feeling pluripotent is a very meaningful thing for me. Fabulous. Wonderful. Oh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, Mark, but let's get back to your audience. Can we uh, look, Danny, at the Mentimeter? All right. Has COVID affected you or someone close to you? I, if I put uh, two, I didn't do the survey, but I also had COVID um, way back in March. All right. So we have had a lot, a lot of people. What are your current behaviors with respect to COVID? And the last question, what are you most curious to learn about in today's conversation? Um, so you're up close and personal to people. Um, how your perspective of how things will play out in the coming months, Mark, and advice about what I can do to pre prevent the spread while restoring some normalcy. So that gives you a little bit of an idea, Mark, about where, where your audience is. So let's start, Mark, with... Um, I do want to get to hope and, and what we can do going forward, but I also would love to understand just a little bit about your experience with COVID. I mean, you know, shows now are starting to show what it has been like, right? Grey's Anatomy now, and there are a couple others who that really, and I'm actually appreciative of that because I think sometimes those of us who are not in the medical profession, it's, it's if we have haven't been touched um, specifically, it's sometimes hard to understand. So without without having us be once again brought into the COVID kind of malaise, can you just give us a little bit of background of what that that was like? Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking. And I think it's really important to capture something that you said, the COVID malaise. I think that it is, we, we need to be mindful that there's a, the malaise, fatigue, whatever synonym you want to use, we're all sort of in that that place. Uh, and that's okay. It's probably to be expected given that we're this far into something that's been this intense and all we want is for it to be over. And I think that there are people who are on the spectrum of how much you want to hear about it. Uh, I think people are probably skewing now more towards that. Like, I, I just, I can't hear anymore 
about it. Um, yeah. And that's also totally okay. As long as the important scientific information and recommendations still sort of filters through, right. uh, you know, in terms of COVID as soon as from my perspective, as soon as I started seeing reports from Wuhan in November, I was like, this is going to be bad. This is going to flip everything on its head. I was a minority in that space and I wasn't like broadcasting it on social media or anything like that. Cause we didn't know that was just my gut feeling knowing what I know about virology and, you know, having been through the H1N1 pandemic that this was just going to be a very different animal and it was going to be profoundly affecting. And we'll sort of see how this all plays out. Once it's sort of hit, once it hit the United States in March, my organization that I'm a part of is actually based in Seattle. And so Seattle was preceded New York in being the first part of the United States to have what we now would refer to as a surge. And so the information that was coming out of Seattle, we were really getting like as hot off the press as you can get before it even got into like physicians hands on social media. We were getting those emails from, you know, the the big hospitals in Seattle that, that we're a part of and so getting a sense of what was there also gave us that sense of not what might come, but what was to come. And it was how much are we going to get and how is it going to impact our community and how much is it going to impact us? Because one of the things about being a hospitalist is we're a provide, I'm a physician on the bleeding edge. So I'm in the hospital. I, you know, I see patients in the emergency department. We send patients to the ICU. We're kind of in that group with the emergency physicians and the critical care docs and the surgeons. We're going to be kind of right there on the front lines. And that's just baked into what we do. My hospital, we had to kind of adapt and kind of go into a disaster mode. And in Sonoma County, we're used to being in disaster mode. We've been through three major wildfires in four years. So standing up our what's called incident command and kind of tooling up and and having that mindset of this is going to be a disaster that we're going to have to manage to. We've done it before, um, unfortunately. Disasters are all different in their nature, but in the mindset that you have to have and the sort of the way you sort of think about your resources and your workforce and these sorts of things, it's, it's the same playbook. And so we were kind of just in that same space again, just from a more granular perspective, we decided as our hospital, like most hospitals in the United States, created what was called a COVID unit, where you had a dedicated part of the hospital that was just going to be for taking care of COVID patients because the isolation and the restrictions have to be so extreme. They all have to have private rooms. You have to put on your personal protective equipment, also known as PPE. Um, it just needs to be segregated from the rest of the hospital population, and that staff needs to be segregated as well. We went through all the trials and tribulations around access to testing. What is the quality of testing? Can we get tested. Uh, it was extraordinarily stressful. I don't use hyperbole and I don't like platitudes. That was extraordinarily stressful. Um, how do we test? Can we test? What if someone doesn't get tested and they come into the hospital? Is the whole hospital going to get infected? These were very real conversations we were having and we weren't alone. These were hosp- these were conversations that were happening all around the world. They were very stressful by, by nature. They were very, very stressful to have. Um, and then to come home and be like, am I going to get sick myself? Am I going to come home and infect my family? Uh, it was extraordinarily stressful to kind of step through all of that. The first time I took care of COVID patients, you know, it was one of those moments that I've had time to reflect on it with a lot of my colleagues as well. And we actually had a really cool round table on national hospitals day where we talked about this. We all had to find our courage. I mean, it was, it was scary. Um, you're putting your PPE on and you're, you're, you're trust it. And it's still scary because you're right in the face of people who literally have COVID and they're coughing and they're breathing and they've got a, whatever's going on. Um, it's scary. It was super scary. And it's something that I'll kind of carry with me. Like the next time I feel like Mark, you can't do this, or I feel scared. Like you did that. You can dig deep and do what's next. And so, you know, it was a challenge. And then I would rotate off of our COVID service. And then I'd have a month or two where I wasn't taking care of COVID patients. And I'd go back on our COVID service. And 
going through those rhythms. Um, it was, it was always some uncertainty. I would have a stretch of time where I'd be off and I'd be getting ready to go back on service. And my wife, Jessica, and I would be looking at each other, like, I'll find out tomorrow morning, which service I'm going to be on. If I'm going to be on COVID, this is going to be a weird week. Uh, and same with my parents and my sister, cause I live in my hometown where my family is. Th- these rhythms and questions, concerns, anxieties were being carried by healthcare providers and first responders around the world. Yeah. Um, I'm not unique in saying that I'm not trying to play hero ball. When I say that, that is where people who were on the front line, those were the conversations we were all having. I'm very thankful that I never had an exposure. I know lots of people who did, and I know people who got COVID because of those exposures. It is a very uncomfortable place to be. And stepping through that process, I now realize just how fortunate I was to not have to experience that. The the branch point that we've all come to as a society is being able having the opportunity to get vaccinated. As soon as the vaccine science started to be published, obviously, I'm very fortunate I have access to the smartest minds in the, around the world. But so do we all. If you use social media correctly, you can have access to those same people and follow those conversations. I had and still have and will continue to have tremendous confidence in the three vaccines that are currently available in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Pfizer, Moderna and J&J. The J&J one, obviously, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but in the last 10 days has come under more scrutiny. That being said, I was able to get my first shot in December and I got my second one in January. And three weeks later, I felt like a different person in the hospital. And we all did because you just felt like I'm still wearing my PPE. I'm still doing everything the same, but the dynamic is very, very different. So that's sort of the current state now. um, But that's a synopsis of what the arc looks like. And as I was describing it, like I could feel my heart rate going up again. So it's interesting, Mark, because one of the reasons that I said, and, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here because I think if people signed up for this, that this is probably not a question. But one of the one of the things, the reasons that I'm glad that shows like Grey's Anatomy are showing this is that I I think that's in Jet wrote a question about it's it's become so politicized. How I don't I, I it's it's interesting. How do we how do we kind of move forward when when there is, you know, I mean, I know people and, and Morgan wrote, you know, how do we the whole idea of vaccines and what advice do you have to, you know, when you have a family member who doesn't want to to get a vaccine like there is that piece that feels like it's kind of a rub and it's really hard. And as a, as a physician, what advice do you have? You know, the, the next phase of the pandemic, right. That's what we're all kind of, that's the, the, the common nomenclature now is whatever we call it. I, I don't like having it be referred to as the end of the pandemic. Cause I don't think it's the end. We are certainly in a different phase. We're in the vaccine available phase. Right. Um, and when you have a vaccine that changes the way, uh, any sort of pathogen interacts with the host that it wants to be on, which are human beings. We have to better understand the relationships that people have with vaccines and vaccine science and work really hard to overcome them. Full transparency, um, part of my maturation as a physician and a scientist, and I still continue to work through this, and I think most people do. The first impulse when I hear, read, learn, or interact with someone who refuses or has concerns about vaccines is I get angry. That is something that I have had to work very, very hard to understand about myself and also recognize and acknowledge that it's an ineffective tool at driving change, right? You read, you read crucial conversations, you say, the end point we need to get to is as many needles in as many shoulders as fast as we can around the world. 
That's how we're going to unlock this. And that's how we're going to get back to the sense, some sense of normalcy that we would all say, this feels like 2017. It's needles in shoulders as fast as we can do it. To get to that point, me approaching someone who says, I don't want to get the COVID vaccine because of any reason with anger is not an effective tool at driving change Mm -hmm. in parallel. We can't say, well, that's just one person. Screw them. Let's move on. We've got these people that we have to focus on because it's the one person at a time that actually will lead to that exponential growth because that one person, just the same way one person can affect two, can affect four, can affect 16 and onward. You can turn off that spigot by vaccinating that one person who may be high risk and not know it. That's the critical piece. So what I have come to better understand about myself as a physician, as a scientist, and as a person, and now as, a, as, as an educator, is the toolbox that is needed to better understand where that person is and how we move to what that goal is. When a person says to me, and I'm, I'm reading this comment, and, and Morgan, I, I'm just going to sort of paraphrase, right? If I was to meet the adult daughter who says, I believe in functional medicine and I'm not going to get the vaccine, they are expecting me to get pissed off. They are tooled up and ready to box and to have Dr. Shapiro come at them guns blazing and to blast them on social media and to tell their friends, guess who I just met? And that is not an effective tool at driving change. We need a needle in that person's shoulder tomorrow and then four weeks from tomorrow. That's how we drive change. So it's understanding what do they mean by functional medicine? What are their concerns? What experiences have they had in the past? Because for them, their personal story may not be the evidence base that we used to say a vaccine is safe, but it's their story. And so we need to take time to understand it. And when I say we, there aren't enough physicians in the United States to do it. It's friends, it's parents, it's anyone who might be thought of as a peer who, when they say that and you don't respond by blasting them, which I guarantee has happened the 12 times that they've mentioned it before, it changes the dynamic of the conversation where again, I might still be mad at them. I might still think they're being irresponsible and inconsiderate, but I need a needle in their shoulder tomorrow. And again, in 28 days. Yeah. That's a great, you know, Mark, it, that that is such great advice. I have a a friend who who feels like she will eventually get the vaccine, but she's just waiting to see how it works. And I have approached that person and said, but I actually think we need to think about the community mm-hmm. and I I have really pushed back and it hasn't been affected. Yeah. So I like the term. I like the term. Help me to understand. So this person says, I want to see how the vaccine works. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me. Help me to understand. What do you mean by it works? Mm -hmm. And then they share with you. What do they mean by it works? Okay. That's interesting. Who would you suggest is an expert that would share how something like this would work? Who would you trust as an expert? And it takes kind of peeling back some layers because, you know, there's, there's a hubris that, that informs American medicine, right? Our, our finest hospitals are the white castles on the hill. We have to understand that there are a lot of barriers that people are going to have that we have to be wise enough and thoughtful enough and caring enough to try to at least tease out and not label with things like irresponsible or stupid or vaccine hesitant. These are terms that are are, are bandied about in a pejorative manner. And those people are just waiting for that fight. That all being said, there is a Venn diagram of specific topics that are impacting our society on a public health level. 
climate change, gun violence, anti-vaccine, pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. There is tremendous intersection. There are some really smart people who have also helped me to understand that there will be people that you will not get to. And you have to you have to know where your limit is. And if you're not getting to them and you're, you've hit your limit, you, you do need to move on. Yeah. That limit is different for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to know that that's there. Herd immunity is not 100 percent. It's not chasing an asymptotic line that we're never going to reach. It's 75 to 80 percent of the population. When you look at climate change resistance and people who do not feel that they're amenable to change, that number is less than 20 percent. It's like depending on who you look at. My favorite is, um, uh, oh, gosh, I just blanked on her name. Uh, it'll come to me, but she's been on my show. It's like nine to 12 percent. She's a professor of climate science at Texas Tech. Um, Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Hayhoe that number is less than what we need to hit herd immunity. So if you hit someone and it's intransigence, move on, but figure out that it's intransigence, not because you're just banging heads, but because you're realizing that they're not acknowledging science. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what do you, I know you did, you were on a TEDx uh, show uh, about a month ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you talked a lot about a lesson that you learned through COVID. And I'm wondering if, if we shift, um, we have a, you know, a few minutes left, if we shift a little bit to think about what, what can we learn? What did we learn? How do we, how do we have that hope going forward? Yeah. You know, I, (laughs) the muddle and the static around how Americans America and Americans handled COVID for me is very, very muddled. I, again, I'm, I'm a pragmatist by nature, but I do try to look at things from a positive perspective, but I am a pragmatist. I'm not just a, you know, a, a pie in the sky optimist. I, I think that in a lot of respects, the way a nation with the size, the diversity the sheer scope and scale, the amount of wealth, the way we handled it, acknowledging a failure of leadership at the federal level is actually pretty remarkable. When you look at how Northern California and specifically my region handled COVID, like it's hats off and a round of applause to this region. People just did it. They just did the work. They wore their masks. They maintained physical distancing. They stayed home. There was a contract that needed to be made, right? And and this is something that you know I've talked about and others have talked about as well, that you make a contract where you say, we're going to ask you to stay home. Yeah. When you do that, you have to provide people with the ways and means to be able to stay home. And if you don't, you're going to have what we saw across the United States. And then when you feed misinformation into that, it's another problem. But to, to acknowledge the numbers of people that did that, to, that did stay home, that did do the work, that still wear their masks, um, that weathered a storm that I, I don't understand what it was like for people. I mean, yeah, it was super scary being in the COVID unit, but I had dinner at home and, you know, I didn't lose my job and I didn't lose power except during the wildfire in October. But th- those sorts of travails didn't affect me or my family. So... I- I think that in in a lot of ways, when we do those studies and when we look back, we're going to see that American metal was tested and stood up to the test. And that makes me really proud to be part of a country that can do all of that, acknowledging the unbelievable challenges that we had to deal with in the face of it. It's made me a more proud American in a lot of ways than I think I was before this started, because we had a failed presidency. We had 
all sorts of other challenges all around the world. We had an we had leadership at the state level that was heterogeneous to say the least. And to get through it in the manner that we did, it allows it allows me to better understand the nature of the tragedy. And I think we're going to have to, in some ways, come to grips with that, too. But it also has made me feel incredibly proud of the people who did stand up. In parallel with that, I think there will also be a time where we will look back just like, you know, Tom Brokaw wrote that book, The Greatest Generation. And it was a reflection on what did people do? There's going to be a time where people are going to ask their parents, what did you do in 2019 and 2020 and 2021? It's going to be really hard to answer. You know, I was screaming at a teller in Target. I went viral because I refused to wear a mask. It's going to be really hard to like stand up and beat your chest and stand behind those actions. And there's a lot of people who are going to have to own that. And that's on them. There's a lot of people who are going to be able to stand tall and say, this was so hard and my family members died and I got sick and I lost my job and my business failed and we still stood up. I get emotional when I think about it. Um, And then there's going to be the reckoning. We have over half a million Americans died. Yeah. We don't under, I don't understand how we're going to grieve that much loss and we're going to deal with it this year, right? We're in that, we're now a year into when it came to the United States, all these families are going to have to start acknowledging like, wow, it's been a year since dad died or a year since mom died alone in the hospital. Um, It's going to be really hard. And Mark, to add to that, right? No one has been able to have the normal types of processes. And right. I mean, I had a friend whose, whose fiance died and she had to go tell the mom at arm's length. She was not able to have a funeral. I mean, she's one of those, you know, uh, approaching 600,000 people who couldn't have what we normally do to help the grieving. Right. The next epidemic we're going to have, and I'm borrowing this from um, Jess uh, Cordova, who's the uh, founder of Lemonada Media, which does In the Bubble and a bunch of other podcasts. And she's she's right when she says we're about to have we're starting on an epidemic of grieving in the United States. That's the next epidemic we're about to deal with. Right. And it's going to suck. It's going to be really hard. And Um, don't you think, Mark, that it's not just grieving those who have died, which will be tremendous, but it's grieving. I mean, I think of um, my three daughters who are all teenagers, I think of your nieces who have missed their, a whole year and a half of what is normal development socially, right? I mean, and, and, and that's a one other, but there are, are a whole number of those, right? So the grief is, is much expanded. So COVID has a couple of things, right? COVID is a, it's a direct threat. And then in parallel, it's also what's called a threat amplifier. And so mm-hmm. things that were previously a threat have been amplified uh, by COVID. If you want to go through a rock flipping exercise on a society and see what's underneath the big rocks, COVID's done that, whether it's gender inequity and the disproportionate impact of women in the workplace losing jobs, it, whether it's race in the United States, whether it's wealth distribution, whether it's climate change, it doesn't matter. COVID has, first of all, put them all into specific relief. And second of all, amplified them. And we have to now reckon with all of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what's coming. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I'm looking at our time and I'm thinking, okay, so, so we have a few more minutes. 
what are those, if we really shake down, what are the nuggets that we're going to take, take forward? Like what, if, if we all of a sudden are about to go into another pandemic, or if we are to learn from this, like what, what gives us, I mean, you mentioned, you know, about how Northern California, you know, what everybody did, but what do we take forward? What are those things that we can take forward? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an essential question. I think the first thing I would say is do not underestimate the power of misinformation. It, it undercut our ability to respond to this and continues to do it. And it's been there for a long time. And when I say don't underestimate it, I'm talking to my own profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone really needs to have a better understanding of the impact of misinformation. It's there's science and there's stuff that we devise based on the best available science. And then there's misinformation and there's no, there's no, there's no muddling there. This isn't watercolor painting, right? There's a clear demarcation between those. Um, But people are certainly susceptible to misinformation. It does not make them bad people. It speaks to how powerful misinformation can be. I think also trust that, right? I'm a student of history. I got my degree in history. The better angels of our nature can and will prevail, but we have to, we have to allow them to do so. And so, um, you know, that, that, that's a quote from Lincoln towards the end of the American civil war, where over half a million Americans died. We have to trust in the better angels of our nature to see us through this and to see us through all of the things that come next. There isn't going to be though, any, any piece of wisdom that, and people are going to try, the hucksters are going to try and sell you do this, this, and this, and everything will be fine. The next time doesn't work that way. Every challenge is different. Every disaster is different, but the playbook has to be the same, whether it's a wildfire or a pandemic or whatever the case may be. The playbook is the same. Trust the science, look after the people next to you and work hard. And that's, that's, that's all you're going to be able to do. The, the, The dimensions of those three pieces are going to be different depending on the challenge. But trust the science, look after the people next to you, work hard. When it's all said and done, you'll be able to say, I did the best that I could. I'm not sure we say anything else after that, Mark. The only thing I was going to say when you talked about misinformation, I think I'm in education. And so what has become really imperative to me is to think about how we can help our teachers learn to teach critically and how they can then help students learn not to regurgitate information, but to think critically. We need in our country critical thinkers so that when there is misinformation, right, we can have educated our students to be able to sift through that. Right. And, and um, it just more than ever, it feels like we have to start really early teaching that. Right. Yes. So, 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're you're a skilled educator and you understand the nuances of education now and you're able to look at it through the prism of the way American education was done for generations, right? You and I weren't that far apart in how we were trained and educated. The opportunities to do it differently are all there and it's an opportunity that can't be missed. It's a massive project, but just like we now as a as a nation have the ha- have the the temerity to undertake infrastructure projects, right? A revitalization of the American educational system is part of that, right? To say, we're going to make this investment. Like it takes, it takes guts to do that. This is, this should be part of it. Everyone's going to want a slice of that and then want a piece of the, right? Everyone's entity is, is, is true and correct. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, I I agree with you hundred percent. A new generation of scientist Americans slash American scientists would be a boon (laughs) for sure. Absolutely. Well, sure gives me a feeling that if I can do that when I teach teachers, that perhaps it is it is something that is going to um, trickle down to um, all of my children. A couple questions in the chat, Mark. Um, Whitney asked how to show gratitude to the medical community with it seeming, oh. without it seeming, yes, right. What what can <laughs> Thank you for asking that. It's a great question. We've talked about it all the time. When I say we, uh, my friends and my colleagues and people at the hospital, it's been a topic on Explore the Space a couple of times. The the uh, heroization of physicians, um, the war analogies. A, a friend of mine who's a retired lieutenant general from the U.S. Army. He and I have talked about this at length on Explore the Space, like. Are the war analogies appropriate? How do we use them responsibly? The idea of physicians as soldiers, as nurses, as soldiers, and going off to war and being on the front line, really, really interesting stuff. And it raises the same thing. I have had people say, Mark, thank you for your service. And I had to learn how to answer that question in a way that is respectful and accepting when it feels super cringy. They are coming from a place of gratitude. And I would invite Whitney and all of you, there's an organization called Operation Gratitude. Um, I'm involved with them. It was started by a retired Marine officer and they do work for first responders and um, all around the world now. Um, Operation Gratitude is super, super cool. He and I talked about that question specifically and it's it's, it's it's a call and response. Thank you for your gratitude. Thank you for your appreciation or thank you for your service. Thank you for your appreciation. Um, the person that's saying that needs to feel validated. They don't know what to say either. We didn't know what to say to soldiers who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. We just knew we didn't want to treat them like we had treated those who came back from Vietnam. We knew that it needed to be a different dynamic. So we didn't have a lost generation of American citizen soldiers. It's hard. It's super hard because you don't know what their experience is necessarily like. And yet you want them to feel embraced and welcomed and appreciated. So something like that is great. But saying thank you really does matter. And then it's whatever feels right to you, whatever feels right and thoughtful and soulful. Because, you know, I appreciate Whitney saying it it might seem gratuitous to whom it might not feel gratuitous to me if you say thank you. It might feel gratuitous to somebody else, but you won't know that. There's another phrase that I love and I use on the show all the time. It's stepping into tension. When you say thank you to a healthcare worker or a first or a first responder who was fighting a wildfire or came to rescue you during a flash flood, thank you for doing this. Thank you for serving. That is a huge step into tension because you don't know how they may respond, but they will hear your message. And that is a huge step in the right direction. Or you could just like bang on pots and pans like we do in New York. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Right. So John asked, how should we relate to people on the one year anniversary of death from COVID of someone in their immediate family? I am not a grief expert. Um, I will say that everyone will go through in some way, shape or form, something related to the five stages of grief from Kubler-Ross. It's going to be a muddle because the normal traditions of grieving in the United States revolved for the majority of people, not everybody, some form of in-person connection, um, whether it was at the time of death or after some sense of community, of fellowship, whether again, I want to acknowledge that we have a very diverse country here, but that seems to be an overarching thread. As a student of the Civil War, there's amazing scholarship on how Americans grieve during the Civil War. It's different than how we grieve now. And we'll write those books too. A huge part of the way Americans are used to grieving was removed. We didn't get to grieve together. We didn't get to bury our loved ones. We didn't get to be at the bedside. I had a patient's family member in the hospital, physically in the hospital, I guess it was about three weeks ago. And I was like, whoa, you're here. I haven't had a family member in the hospital for a year. Um, we're going to learn together how to address that. But I think it's just acknowledging it and, and not and just being courageous and saying what you experienced, we don't understand. How can we support you? Because we don't know. And it would be arrogant of me to say, I understand how you're going to, what your grieving process is going to look like. You're probably in stage four. Let me just open my textbook for medicals. That's nonsense. We have no idea. The journey is different and how we grieve got totally disrupted, just like every facet of American life. Just like you say, thank you to someone who you perceived as being of service, someone who you think may be grieving to say, I imagine your process is totally different than what you had ever expected. How can I support you? Yeah. Right. Just be just look after the person next to you. Yeah. That makes Whatever sense. way they need. Don't perceive to know what they need. Access what they need and then just do it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Mark. What, what was behind the question was that I was thinking about an aunt of mine who died. There was no funeral. We couldn't acknowledge the, the great life she had lived. She was quite old. And so I was wondering, should we propose to get people together? But I mean, you're right. We just, you know, ask her her kids, you know, yeah. how, is this something you would like to make a bigger event or not? How do yeah. you want to, to grieve and handle it? You know, it's, it's giving people that sense of agency that they lost. Um, and even if what they say feels weird, disagreeable, not necessarily what you would do in the same situation, doesn't mean they're wrong. And so it's giving them the agency that was lost of, okay, now what do you want to do? And whatever you want to do, we'll be here. You want to do something? Cool. You don't? Okay. We'll still be here. Well, Mark, before we go, then we have two things that I'd like to do. One is in sense of gratitude, I would like to extend, yes, gratitude to you, but actually also to your mother because, and your father, I don't know if he's on today, but um, they, they raised an amazing son. So um, thank you to Margaret and Des. And um, Mark, thank you so much. I I almost feel like we've found another facet of our relationship that this is just, this is so fun. I want to get fun. with yeah. you um, yeah. another time. My thanks once again to Susie for having me on an episode of Start Over. Their conversations are wonderful. There's a link to Start Over in the show notes. This episode did cut off a tiny bit abruptly. You'll notice at the end, but that was really just us saying thank you for another 10 or 15 seconds. So the good content, the key stuff, we had covered all of it, and we still managed to get a couple of nice words in about each other. 
It was very cool. My mom was in the audience and my dad checked it out afterwards. So that was very special for me as well. My thanks also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to Care Align for sponsoring this episode. Check out Care Align for everything you need to manage patient care at your fingertips. Go to www.carealign.ai backslash explore to learn more. Thanks as always to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Explore the Space with me on the other side of the mic. It was great fun to do it. We will be back soon with more great content. So until then, continue to take care of yourselves. If you have not had the opportunity yet to get your COVID-19 vaccine, please do so. And if you have any questions about it, please do speak with an expert, your physician, a friend, but make sure to get that done. That is our ticket out of all of this. We will be back soon with another episode of Explore the Space. So until then, take care. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.